would be Ruth chapter 1. Odd? Coincidence? Not at all. That's really what the book of Ruth is all about, is how God is sovereign, right? He's over all of the little details. He is in charge. And so, by accident, <laughs> not really, uh, we, we happen to be on, we just so happen to be on Ruth chapter 1 today. I think that's great because we're going to continue and hopefully uh, today we'll, we'll finish it off, Ruth chapter 4, and uh, then you'll have a chance over the next couple of days to finish up reading the rest of it and hopefully it can sink in for all of us a little bit more. Maybe that's what God has in mind for us. I believe that it is. So hopefully I won't stumble over my words too much and uh, his word will be revealed to us. I do want to, uh, before we, we launch, go straight to chapter four, we kind of did a review of chapter one there already with Greg and with our reading, but let me remind you of some things in chapter two and chapter three. So Ruth uh, and Naomi get to Bethlehem at the end uh, or the beginning of the barley harvest. And so there is, there's been a famine, and now there's barley harvest, so there's a little hope, right? And so uh, that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 2. From that point on, um, God has, by his sovereignty, he has placed um, some, some rules and some things in the culture there, uh, in, in the law, actually, that says that there's a way for people like them who are extremely poor to be able to pro provide food for themselves. So Ruth goes and she gleans in the fields, in the corners of the fields, so that she can get some food and those, so that she and her mother-in-law can survive. Um, and so she just so happened, my little quotation marks here, just so happened to go to Boaz's field. And Boaz just so happened to be a redeemer. And he just so happened to show up that day in the field where she was. And he just so happened to notice her. And um, they began a relationship of sorts. Um, not, not a dating kind of relationship like we think of or anything like that. But he noticed her and he made sure that she was going to be taken care of. And he made sure he provided food for her and her mother-in-law. He provided a community of people that would work all the workers out in the fields for her so that she could grow in her relationship with the Lord. Uh, because remember, she's a Moabite. And so she is not an Israelite. She doesn't have the religious background or foundation that everybody else had in, in the culture there. And so he has provided that for her so she could learn and grow in that. Um, at the end of chapter 2, we find that they are in a spot where um, Ruth and Naomi say, well, we've, our greatest needs at the beginning of this were food and family. God has now provided food for us. What about family? And so... Um, beginning of chapter 3, end of chapter 2, uh, Naomi, the mother-in-law, comes up with a plan to um, find a way that basically Ruth can um, let Boaz know that she's available. And um, this is not the way it would have normally been done. Let me remind you of that. Normally, uh, in, in this kind of a situation, the father of, of the bride-to-be would go to the husband-to-be and would, you know, strike a deal. And the, the father would be very involved in, in this exchange here so that she could become his wife. But there is no father in this situation. They've all died. And so Naomi, the mother-in-law, is the closest thing to that. So Naomi steps into that role. This is unheard of uh, that she would step into this role. But there really was no other way. And it, is, it does still kind of follow God's plan in that the family 
helps to provide a way so that she could become married and have a, a family of choice. Um, so Naomi steps into this role, and they go through the Ruth goes through with the plan. Uh, she changes it up a little bit, uh, and she kind of goes off on her own a, a little bit, and she reminds Boaz, hey, uh, you prayed for me that God would spread his wings over me and protect me. Um, why don't you answer that prayer? That's kind of how she does it. And so um, he says at the end of chapter 3, yes, I will, this very day. I will do it this today. And so we have a, now a promise of redemption at the end of chapter 3. So that's where we're walking, stepping into with chapter 4 today, uh, with the promise of redemption. Um, something I wanted to say to you guys last time I, I spoke on, on chapter 3 that I forgot. Um, when, when Naomi steps into the father's role, uh, it, it makes me think about how our families are not perfect either, right? We, we all have dysfunctional families in some way. Um, nobody here can say my family's perfect. Everybody's got, you know, there's something that's wrong everywhere, right? And yet, I want you to see that this dysfunctional family, God is at work with them, and God is going to use them. So if you, if you feel like uh, God can't use me because my family is just too messed up, you're wrong. God can use anyone. And God does use anyone. God, at this point in our story, he's using a dysfunctional family, but he's also using a Moabite woman, uh, which was a crazy thought in those days as well. He can use you. He can use your family situation. He can use all of us. We've got to be open and willing to listen to him so that we can hear from him and follow his direction and follow his lead. But he can do this. Do, do not give up. Hang on to your hope. We are at the beginning of the barley harvest, so to speak. You know, there, there's always hope. There's something that's about to happen. He is with us. He's promised that. Um, I want to... Um, Remind you also that there, this is not quite the, the typical love story. You know, Boaz has promised to redeem her, but he has not said, I will, I'm gonna, you're going to be mine no matter what it takes. What he has said is, I am going to, um, to pursue you to redeem you, but there's another guy in line ahead of me. So he is, is coming under the law of God so that he can redeem her in the biblical and proper way. The biblical and proper way. Because he knows if he gets to the end of the line, he didn't just power through and make it happen on his own. When he trusts in God's law and he does it God's way, then when he, gets, when he finally gets her, he can be assured that God had his hand in it. It wasn't him getting his way. God has his hand in all of it as well. And so I think that's a beautiful picture of where we ought to be. We, we, I know there are things that I have desired in my life that I would just do anything to have. And then there are times when I have probably refused to listen to God. And I've just done it. Don't get ahead of God, you know. Do it his way and then you can, can step into it uh, with assurance. And I, I think that's important for us to remember. Um. This is also the time of the judges, when everybody did what was right in his own eyes, and Boaz chooses to come under the Lord's provision, the Lord's law. 
So this is this is is speaks of his character that everybody else is doing whatever they want, and Boaz is submitting to the Lord. Um, I also want to before we launch into chapter four, I want to remind you of the what a redeemer is. Uh, so Leviticus chapter twenty five. Verse 23, this speaks, there's two parts of being a redeemer. Uh, one is to redeem the land, and one is to redeem the wife, the woman, the family. Um, so I'm going to read for this. This first part comes from Leviticus, and this is the part about the land. Remember, God, God gave the Israelites this land, right? And God has made it theirs, and so he puts some things in place so that the land will stay in Israel and not become land for the foreigners, land for the Moabites or you know, whoever, the Ninevites. Um, it's God's land, so he makes sure that it's going to stay in, in their possession. So that's what this is about. So Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Now it goes on to some more details, but that's the gist of it. Your brother steps in. If you can't afford your own land, your brother steps in and purchases it, purchases it so that it can stay in the family. And your brother is to take care of the family and the land at that point. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 5. This is the part, I, I read part of this to you last time. I'm going to read a little bit more this time. This is the part that has to do with family. And so this says, says this, 20, Deuteronomy 25 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her brother... Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name shall not be blotted out of Israel. So he remains an Israelite because his heir, he has, a, he has an heir even though he has died. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife... Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to per perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off of his foot and spit in his face. Can you imagine that? Woman pulls your shoe off and spits in your face. Uh, and he shall answer and say, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has his sandal pulled off. So it's a picture of shame. It's a picture of shame. This is, this is what God um, not only laid down, but it's his expectation and, he, you know, if you don't live up to, to the expectations here, then you get spit on, right? You get some shame. And that's, that's the idea here is because this is what God wants to see happen. Um, the Redeemer, um, he also has to be 
willing, he, you know, he's got, he's got to be able to do it, meaning he meets the standards, and he's also going to be willing. Now, he, So he can get out of it. He'll, he'll have to endure the shame. He could get out of it, but he'll endure the shame. So he has to be willing, and he has to be able, meaning he meets the standard. He is a relative. Uh, he is the nearest relative that is willing. So willing and able is, is, is a requirement for uh, being the Redeemer. Um, just the other night, okay, my kids were sitting over there a minute ago. They're not here now. So I'm going to tell a story on them. Um, we, Miranda and I were, I don't remember whether it was maybe Friday night. Um, Miranda had bought some pie. And it was, uh, we were, it was, you know, starting to settle in for the evening. And so she brings out the pie and she, uh, is going to cut each of us a piece of this pie. My kids are playing in the back of the house. I'm actually studying in the back of the house. And so she does this unbeknownst to me. And, um, evidently she calls out to the kids, you know, Kesley, Kesley, come on in here. And my daughter, Kesley, she runs in. And she finds Miranda there. And uh, Miranda offers her some of the pie. And so she gets her pie. And then my daughter, because she's my daughter, uh, she gets some more and brings it to me in the back of the house. And um, then she... So I, so I come in, and then Miranda cuts herself a piece. And Kaysen never shows up. He's still in the back of the house playing his game or watching TV. I don't know what he was doing. Uh, playing. And... So we all sit down and we're eating our pie. And my son walks in a few minutes later and we're all, you know, halfway through our pie. And he looks at us and like, where's mine? And uh, Miranda says, well, you didn't come when I called you. So you don't get any. We've been working on listening the first time is one of the things we've been working on in our house. So you don't get any. Kaysen, I'm sorry, we called you. Uh, she actually called three or four times and you never came. So you don't get any. So... So he, like you just see the, the, the facial expression, it just drops, and he, he's very upset by it all. It's just pie, but he's upset. Um, and he turns around with a mopey sort of thing and, and walks back to the back of the house. We continue to eat, and uh, a few minutes later, he comes back again, and he sits down, just doesn't say a word, he sits down on the end of the couch, and... Um, he is still moping. And Kesley, she um, gets up and she walks back to the kitchen. And then uh, she comes back in and she has cut her pie into two pieces and she offers some of it to him. Uh, this is a picture of redemption in a way. Um, she has a beautiful heart that is willing to step in when uh, she was willing and she was able to step in and to offer him some pie. Um, so we ended up having some conversations and giving him a whole piece and she got to eat all of hers. But um, I just thought it was a, a cool picture because that's kind of, uh, when I was in the back of the room, this is what I was studying. Um, Boaz is, in chapter four, Boaz is the central character in the story. We see very little of Ruth. This is the part where he is going to redeem her, right? And she, she's barely in the chapter. This is also important. 
Because when it comes to our redemption, we have little to nothing to do with it. It is what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Our salvation, our redemption is his work, not ours, right? It's his work, not ours. So as we read, you're going to notice that um, you don't see much of her. Yeah, we'll go. Chapter 4. Verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. The gate is where everybody gathered. Uh, this is where a lot of commerce happened and all that. So he went to the place where, where most of these kinds of things would, would take place. And it says, um, And the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. Behold! Surprise! Accident! Coincidence! That he would show up. Not at all, right? God is sovereign, his sovereignty, his providence. He's he's at work behind the scenes here. Just so happens that this guy shows up. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. Now, Boaz is a redeemer. And this, this other guy is the closer redeemer. Which means that Boaz and this guy are related. Boaz knows his name. He has to know his name, right? For the simple fact that he knew there was a redeemer closer than him, he, he, had, he knew who it was. He knows this guy's name, but he calls him friend. He doesn't give him a name. And, and in the Hebrew, it's actually like saying, Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so. So he never actually gives this guy a name. Um, which is interesting. As we go on, we'll, you'll see more of that. It says, verse 2, He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now nobody really knows why they took ten men, but later on in Scripture we find that ten is the number that was required for a quorum in uh, the synagogue. And so ten men was probably the requirement for a legal transaction. Um, we're not real sure of that at this point, uh, but we know later on it was. So he took 10 men of the elders and said to them, sit down. So they sat down. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it, as the pres- buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Boaz is good. Boaz makes this sound like a really sweet deal. I mean, basically what he's saying to this guy is, if you will watch over Naomi and take care of her for a few years, because she's at the end of her life, it's not going to be that long, then you can have all of this land. And then you can take all of this land and divide it up among your own sons and, and things are going to be great. It's a very good deal to get all of this land for such a small price of, pay, of watching after Naomi for a few years. So that's why Boaz made it sign. And so the guy says, I will redeem it. Of course I will. I would be crazy not to redeem it, right? Um, now what if it ends right there? What if the story ends there? You know, Ruth rides off to the, in the sunset with 
Mr. So-and-so, right? That wouldn't be good. That's, that's, not where this, that's not where this story has been leading. That This is not the way it's supposed to go, right? And it doesn't, because Boaz is good. Uh, the fairy tale has not been destroyed. Um, verse 5, then Boaz said... He, he adds on the rest after he, the guy's already said he's going to do it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. He, he made sure to say she's a Moabite because nobody liked her, the Moabites. You also require, acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So now this is different. Ruth is not at the end of her life. Ruth is at childbearing age. So now he's not only going to get the land and Naomi, he's got to take care of her, but he's also got to have a child with Ruth. And if he has a child with Ruth, then that child will be the one who's going to get all the land um, whenever he dies. And, and, and his own land, for that matter, if he had more than, than this new land he was purchasing, his own land um, would also be divided among this new child that he's had with Ruth. So his own kids may get less in their inheritance, and he won't get this other deal. So now, all of a sudden, it's a whole different ballgame. I love the way that Boaz, he knows who he's talking to. He knows what he's doing. He's, he's wise, right? Sort of a little sly. Um, so now the guy says he doesn't want any part of that. Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem it. Cannot. Got to be willing and able. He says he cannot. He's not willing, and he says he's not able. I, I, I'm not sure, like, does that mean he didn't have enough money? I don't think so. I think it's really more willingness here, right? Um, in, in, this, in this story, as, as I was studying, um, I listened to a sermon by Tommy Nelson. I love Tommy Nelson. I think a lot of people in this church love Tommy Nelson, right? Um, one of the things that Tommy Nelson pointed out here is that, uh, you know, we've got Boaz, who is the redeemer. Boaz represents Christ, who has redeemed us. He has paid the price for us um, and purchased us by his blood. But we've got this other guy. Who does, what's his name, or Mr. So-and-so, who does he represent, is what Tommy Nelson points out. And he, he asks that question. And he answers it by saying, well, really, he's us. He's us. He's the guy who wants the good deal. And he's, he's willing in that sense. But he's unable. He's unable. Because he's, because he's concerned about his own name here, right? He doesn't want his kids to, to lose their inheritance. He's concerned about his own name. And by the way, isn't that interesting? He's concerned about his own name, and he doesn't even get a name, right, in the Scriptures. God made sure of that. Uh, I think that's interesting and sort of uh, appropriate. Um, 
he's concerned about his own name, and so he cannot do it because he's concerned about his own stuff. Isn't that us? That's what Tommy Nelson pointed out as I was listening to him. That's us. We, we would like to be able to pay for our own sin and if, we, if we were able, but we can't, right? We can't. We are unable. It's our own sin that disqualifies us, right? That's why Jesus Christ is the only one qualified, because he's perfect and holy, and we are not. So this guy may be willing, but he is not able, because he wants, it's all about him, right? Isn't that us? It's me. It's me, for sure. We are not qualified to pay the penalty for our sins. We are not enough. It's Christ alone that can do that. Christ alone. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction... The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Now, there's some debate about what this whole shoe thing kind of means and where that comes from. But what most scholars are saying, and they are all kind of in agreement on this, is that the shoe... When they hand you the shoe, they're basically saying, okay, this land, you can walk on it as if you were me. This is now your land. And, and if you'll remember in Joshua chapter, chapter 1, uh, God tells, tells the people, wherever you walk, that'll be your land, right? So wherever you walk, that's your land. So the shoe may have, it, it has to do with the land most likely, but it is an extension of that has to do with this whole transaction with the land and with Ruth. So when he takes off his shoe and gives it to Boaz, he's saying, okay, this is a done deal. This was the way the transaction happened. Verse 9, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, By the way, who started out here? It was the elders. He got ten elders, right? And now it says, Boaz said to the elders and all the people. So they've kind of gathered a crowd. You know, people want to know what's going on, right? Um, they see that all the elders are gathered and they want to find out what's going on. So now there's a crowd there. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. I have bought to be my wife. Here's a quote from David Platt. Now pause right there and think about where we came from and where we are now. Ruth chapter 1 verse 20, Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth chapter 2 verse 10, Ruth the foreigner is how she's labeled. Ruth chapter 2 verse 13, she is the slave in Boaz's field. Ruth chapter 3 verse 9, she is the servant wanting marriage. We have come from Moabitess, foreigner, slave, servant to Ruth chapter 4 verse 10. Wife. Redemption, right? Wife. This Moabite woman from outside the people of Israel is now grafted in to the people of Israel as an Israelite's wife. It's a beautiful picture. 
I was a sinner. I was lost. I was confused. I was fighting, trying to do things on my own. I never fit in. I was a foreigner. Until the third Wednesday of July, 1985. I had some pictures I was going to show you of me in 1985. (laughs) Not pretty. Um, That night, around a campfire, God had been sovereign. He had been working behind the scenes to bring me to that night. God had moved me from Oklahoma to Corpus Christi and given me some experiences there that, um, quite honestly, I didn't like it. And then we moved to Crowley, Texas, just south of Fort Worth, and just so happened to join the, 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 this church in, in Crowley, Texas. Um, we, they just so happened to be going on a church camp um, the following year. The youth minister there just so happened to be uh, a gospel-driven guy. Uh, and we just so happened to uh, build a relationship with each other in such a way that that night, around that campfire, after he had presented the gospel, I gave my life to Christ. I was redeemed. I, I didn't become a wife, as we see here, but I became a son, right? God works behind the scenes in his sovereignty to many times, all of a sudden, he will appear and, and, and it's, he's not behind the scenes anymore. That night, he was not behind the scenes for me anymore. He revealed himself to me that night and I became his um, I had no part in that. I had no part in that. He did all the stuff leading up to that night. And then that night he revealed himself and I, I couldn't deny him. Right? I had no part in it. Ruth hasn't showed up in the chapter yet. She didn't have any part in this either. Um, the rest of verse 10 she became his wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place you are witnesses this day you are witnesses this day this has not been off, done so, off in some corner there were ten elders and now there's a crowd you are witnesses of what has happened Boaz wants everybody to know she's mine She's a Moabite. Yes, but she's mine. Boaz is proud of this thing. Um, it is important uh, to recognize it's not done off in some corner. There, the witnesses are important. I, I brought this today. This is, um, somebody asked me if I was going to do the rock and, uh, you know, you put the little things in and the big things. No, we're not doing that. Uh, this is, um, these are just rocks, right? They're just rocks, but not to me and not to Miranda. These rocks have a story. The day that we got married, 
Um, we passed out rocks as people walked in, or we didn't, we were somewhere else, but we had people pass out rocks um, as people came in to the sanctuary that day. And at some point in our ceremony, we had everybody hold on to the rock, and they just prayed for us. This is, this is the one time that all of her family and friends and all of my family and friends are probably going to be together. They're not going to be around each other hardly ever again. Um, not that they don't like each other. It's just that circumstances don't allow for that. And so we will never have that group gathered together again. And so we said, well, gosh, these are the people that are witnesses. These are the people that are going to hold us accountable. When we struggle in our marriage... These are the people that we're going to be having conversations with. We want them to be a part of this. We are making a commitment to one another, but we're going to need their help. And so we had them all say a little prayer as they held the rock. And then when they left, they dropped the rocks into a basket or something. And now we keep them at our house. When I go in and out of my front door every day, they're sitting on a little table right there. And it's a reminder for me that I'm not in it alone. I'm not in it alone. We've got God's people behind us, right? Um, and when we struggle, we, we can go, I'm reminded that we, we can go to other people and that we don't have to do this all by ourselves. Um, we have the Lord uh, as well. And that's even better than all those silly rocks, right? Um, but it's, it's a great thing for me to remember that. And, and I think it's important here as well. Uh, Alistair Begg, here's a quote from him. When marriage is laid out for us in the Bible, it is not laid out in the way that most of us think of it. It is not in the Bible as a private alliance between two people that can be made or unmade as they wish by their own private choice. The presence of witnesses in relationship to this and in relationship to marriage is not just some happy, irrelevant gesture. It's a vital part. It's a constituent part of what is taking place in a marriage because a marriage is a social civic ceremony as well. The whole point of the symbolism and ceremony is that it's public. And in the same way, marriage takes place like that. The phrase he used is, it's not in the Bible as a private alliance. I think our culture has done that. We think we're alone. We go run off and elope. Do it by ourselves. And then when we struggle, we're still by ourselves, right? Or, or maybe we're too embarrassed to admit that we're having marriage troubles. And so we don't talk to people. It's a private alliance at that point. And that is not what God intended we are here for one another. He gave us the body of Christ. Boaz gave Ruth this community of people that she worked with in the field, right? We are in this together. And I think we, we've got to remember that. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Marriage is more than your love for each other. Love is... is this is me talking now. Love is not an emotion, but Mar Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, marriage is more than your love for each other. It's a higher dignity and power, for it is God's holy. He wills to perpetuate the human race till the end of time. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. But in marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations. 
which God causes to come to come to pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status. It's an office. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. Marriage is a commitment. It is not an emotion. It is not just love. If it was, then Boaz would not have gone to the other guy. He would not have given that guy an opportunity. If it was just emotion, Boaz was already there emotionally, right? He would have gone after her wholeheartedly. But it's more than that. It's a commitment to be love, to be God and representative of him to one another. And in so doing, you can't leave God out of it, right? You've got to follow his commands. And that's exactly what Boaz did. There are times, Miranda will, will tell you it's true for sure. There are times I do not feel like loving my wife. Just are. There are times she does not feel like loving me. But it's bigger than the emotion. We made a commitment to one another that we would act in love regardless of how we feel. That's what Christ did. I don't think he felt like going to the cross. As a matter of fact, he said, you know, take this cup from me. It's an act of the will, not an act of our emotion. When we get married, we don't say, um, we, we say, I will. We don't say, I will if I feel like it. Right? I do. I commit to these things, regardless of how I feel. Marriage should look like the gospel. Where we, we do what we are called to do in spite of how we feel. Verse 11 Chapter 4, verse 11, back to Ruth. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. These are heroes of the faith that have uh, born children. And they're saying, may you be like them. They're excited about it. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Remember she had been in Moab for 10 years with Malon. 10 years with Malon. And she had not born any children. None. I would imagine that was probably something that they struggled with. But what's different here? Did you catch it? 
And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. The Lord gave her conception. This, this is, is a picture of, of, of the same thing we've been talking about. God's sovereignty here at work. We, in, in right here, what is this? Chapter 4, verse 13. And also Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6. These are the only two times in the book of Ruth where, it, where the Lord comes to the forefront. He's working behind the scenes throughout the entire book. But these two times and these two verses... When the Lord um, granted the famine to be over and started providing food for people in chapter 1, and now he is providing family. The two things all along, food and family, they are the greatest needs that we see in Ruth. And the Lord has now provided both of them. He worked behind the scenes, and then boom, there he is. Right? He worked behind the scenes, and boom, there he is. He is at work here and provides a child for her. Um, and by the way, if she had born a child when she was in Moab, she would have never made it to Israel, right? She would have never made it to Israel. The Redeemer would not have come. God had a plan. He knew what was up. Even when things looked dark. At their worst times, God knew what was going on. Verse 14. Well, before we do that, did you notice what else wasn't here? My wife loves um, romantic comedy movies. Ladies, ladies, yes. Um, she, matter of fact, she won't go to the movies otherwise. If it's not that, she won't go. So the guys in our small group, we get together and go to guy movies, and then we go when we go with our wives, we see those. Um, <laughs> It's the only chance we have. So that's what we do. Romantic comedy movie, though. This is kind of the standard that we have in our culture, the way we think it ought to be. There's some sort of people, and um, and then there's, you know, in and out, things are going good, things are going bad, and at the very end, what happens at the end? A wedding, right? Usually there's a wedding. And if there's not a wedding with them, then it's a wedding with two wrong people, and one of them leaves, and then they get back together, and then there's another wedding with the right people, Right? This is what we think our, our, this is what our culture says is the way a marriage should be. But this is not marriage. It's just a wedding. Did you notice there's no wedding here? Maybe God thinks the wedding is not quite as important as we think in our culture. There's no wedding. It's not about, we, I think we have in our culture, we have women who long to be brides. And they prepare and prep for it. They think about it when they're in kindergarten. They're thinking about what their wedding is going to be like. But how many want to be wives? How many long to be mothers? The wedding is not the end. The wedding is, plays a very small role. It's much more about your character and who you are if you're going to have a marriage. I think we spend, uh, the, the statistic that I read in all this said uh, between twenty-five dollars and $30,000 is what the average wedding costs these days. Twenty-five dollars and $30,000 for a wedding these days. Um, I wonder if we spent that much money on our marriages, if our 
we wouldn't have as many divorces. I wonder. What if we spent that much money um, learning how to be better parents and raising children differently in ways that go against this culture that tells them all these things? my little soapbox, sorry. By the way, being a bride is easy. Being a wife is hard. That's why. That's why it's the way it is. It's easy to be the bride. It's difficult to be the wife. Verse 14, sorry, back to Ruth. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. And she's given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. Chapter 1. Remember where Naomi was? She said, call me bitter because I'm empty. Everything has been taken from me. Now she's got a child on her lap. Verse 17, And the, woman of, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What? He was, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of who? David? David? The greatest king Israel had ever known? Came from the line of a Moabite woman? God could do anything, right? God can use dysfunction. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, you can follow the lineage even further. And where does it land? Jesus. Jesus. The Moabite woman. No biblical foundation at all. She worshipped Chemosh, a cult. She has now been grafted in to the family of God. Literally, the family of God. Her line lands to Jesus. We, when we come to him, we're grafted in too. And we become his family too. Because he has paid the ultimate price. He took our place on the cross. He was willing 
And he, and he alone is able, as pure and holy and blameless, to pay for our sin once and for all, completely gone, wiped away, and we are made pure and become his, his children. This is what I long for for each of you. He's paid the price. We receive it and we live in response to that. We live as his children. This is what I long for in my children. I'm going to finish up here and just read something that I wrote to you. Um, Band guys, y'all want to come on up? I'm going to finish here. Whatever your circumstance, there's something much bigger going on. These are rocks, but they're not just rocks. Obed is a baby, but he's not just a baby, right? Something much bigger going on. In the worst of times, we can be assured that God is still sovereign and he is still at work on our behalf. When we suffer, when we don't understand, when we're crying out to him, he is still God. Even when it doesn't go our way and it, doesn't just, and it just doesn't make sense, we've got to know that he can turn it all around for his good. When Naomi was empty and her husband and boys died, God was sovereign. When Ruth walked into a foreign country where she knew she'd be hated, he was sovereign. When there was no hope, he had a plan. Not only did he have a plan, but this plan would lead to the greatest king Israel would ever know, and eventually to Jesus himself. Boaz met Ruth when she was a poor servant in her worst clothes working in the field. She's a foreigner, a widow, a servant. She was a nobody who could do nothing to earn her way into a favorable position. She had nothing to do with her redemption. She wasn't even in that portion of Scripture. Boaz chose her, though. He recognized something in her that even she didn't see. In the same way, Jesus alone has the ability to redeem us. He alone is qualified. He has seen us and he chooses us. May we choose to live our lives honoring him. May we give ourselves to him. May we recognize that he cannot make it, we cannot make it on our own and that he alone can redeem us. Jesus alone can restore us, give us a hope and a future. He alone can satisfy. Jesus alone is our all. He's everything we need. He's light and love and hope and truth and purpose and passion and life. He's life. Life. Everlasting life. He's Jesus, and we need Jesus. We need a Redeemer. Jesus is his name.